This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, on occasion, we at Radio Parallax are in a position to give you some better reportage than you're going to get from the mainstream media. This happens on occasion when we are especially well-informed about a given topic. This is even truer when, for one reason or another, the mainstream media out there is not that interested in covering something properly. As talked about on this program over the years, there are many people out there trying to shape public opinion. And sometimes they have very large budgets to do so. Sometimes they're very well connected. Sometimes they have affiliations with the powerful. For whatever reason, sometimes you, the public, dear listener, don't really get the story you should. We're going to correct that, at least on one small issue today. That topic would be the alleged release last week from the National Archives of John F. Kennedy assassination-related records. We um, mentioned on this show, and it was all over the media, actually, the past week or so, um, we were headed, supposedly, for a release of a large number of records. And, well, let's just say it didn't go down like it was supposed to. But before I get into that, because that's a rather depressing topic, I want to just hit the pause button and talk about something else that's really quite extraordinary. And unlike items from the dreary world of politics, this one comes from the world of science. We're talking about something that scientists predicted they might see at some future point, but until this month, no one had ever actually seen. We are talking in this case about a visitor from deep space. In other words, from a region out in the cosmos beyond that of the solar system. And, and actually, let us review uh, what we're referring to when we talk about the solar system. At the center of it, of course, is our sun, which contains well over 99% of the mass of the entire solar system. There are eight planets that orbit the sun, and no, we're not counting Pluto. There are eight large bodies that I think by any account would have to be referred to as planets, and there are numerous moons of substantial size that orbit the eight planets. There is Pluto, which is a dwarf planet, as part of the Kuiper Belt. This is a bunch of icy objects out past Neptune, which are quite fascinating in their own right, and, um, and, and things we're learning a great deal more about. In January of, I believe it is, 2019, the New Horizons spacecraft is going to whiz past another Kuiper Belt object, actually the first one besides Pluto that we're going to get a good look at, and that's going to be a red-letter day for Radio Parallax and the rest of us. In addition to the main planets in the inner solar system, there's lots of small, rocky bodies. Most of these are located in the asteroid belt. This is a region between... Mars and Jupiter. We currently have a spacecraft orbiting the largest of the asteroids, that is the asteroid Ceres. This has also been labeled a dwarf planet because it's big and it's round. 
And good news for us, they've extended the Dawn mission another year at NASA to see what they can learn as Ceres gets, makes its closest approach to the sun. In addition to rocky bodies known as asteroids, there are comets that orbit the inner solar system, like Halley's Comet, that never get much further out than Neptune. But most of the comets in the solar system are in this large Oort cloud, which is something like a light year away, up to a light year away orbiting the sun. Every so often, one of these busts loose, well, has a gravitational interaction, and plunges down to the sun to make a spectacular appearance before disappearing back out to the Oort cloud again. These long-term comets have orbits of something like 10,000 years. And there's a few bodies we can't quite decide how to define. They appear to be something between comets and asteroids. They're, they're icy, they're rocky, but when they get close to the sun, they sometimes put a little bit of gas and dust out and appear very comet-like. In addition to all of this, there's bits of rubble, small chunks of material, from pinheads up to maybe the size of, uh, I don't know, just to pick something arbitrary, a, a large bus. These occasionally will crash into the Earth and are known as meteors when they're streaking through the atmosphere and meteorites when whatever pieces complete the plunge and land on the Earth's surface. Now, it's been speculated for quite some time that somewhere along the way, something that was not bound to the sun in any way might pay us a visit. It might come in from deep space where... Millions of years ago, it was orbiting some other star system. This was merely theoretical up until this month, when scientists finally spotted something that bears the fingerprints of an extrasolar visitor, as it were. It's been labeled A-2017U1. It is believed to be about 400 meters in diameter, or a little bit less, pretty good-sized chunk of rock, quarter mile across. It has entered the solar system, as occasionally comets do, uh, parallel to the plane. Most of the planets and most of the junk that orbits the sun is in basically like a phonograph record plane, reminiscent of the rings of Saturn, I guess you might say. But this thing that paid us a visit here this month and is now disappearing back out into space again came perpendicular to that plane, which right away got people's attention. They weren't sure at first if it might be a comet, like Comet Hale-Bopp that visited us, oh, was it 15 years ago? Made quite a spectacular show in the sky. Anyway, scientists were keen to learn more about this object coming in at an unusual angle, but when they measured its speed, they really got a surprise. It's moving so fast that it, that it is not going to be captured by the sun. No way. Given the speed at which it's coming in, and the speed at which it's exiting the solar system, we know it ain't sticking around. It's going back out into deep space. Now, in the first reports on the subject, we were a bit puzzled by the speeds that were being described because, well, you know, what is the escape velocity from the solar system? If you do the math, and we don't necessarily recommend that you do, dear listener, because it's been done already, but if you do the math, you'll find out that um, if you're out at the orbit of Neptune, you only have to go something like 8 kilometers per second to leave the solar system. If you're in where the Earth is, we are closer, we're more influenced by the sun's gravitational attraction. Thus, to escape from it, you have to go faster still. If you're near the surface of the sun, you've got to go way faster still. This object came in within the orbit of Mercury, and it just so happened that it got bent 
in such a way that it went out of the solar system and did and passed fairly close to the Earth. So by accident, we got a snapshot picture of it as it was leaving. I don't know how much more science is going to come out of this, but it's a doggone interesting thing to have happened. Perhaps this will open the door to many more such objects being tracked in the future, kind of like the, 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 the LIGO uh, de- determination that there were such things as gravity waves a couple years ago. Well, now we're seeing more and more events that uh, are allowing uh, astronomers to, to use these gravitational waves to make determinations about the universe. Pretty cool. Now, Mr. McMillan certainly wishes that the, uh, the program that we keep talking about to be able to divert asteroids and, you know, have Earth in the crosshairs needs to be further developed where we may be able to go out and maybe capture one of these things or go out and take a chunk of one. Scientists would certainly be keen to get a chunk of material that came from outside of the solar system. Speaking of that, just so happens the current edition of Astronomy Magazine, which the November issue was printed up, I think, probably in September, before a 2017 U1 paid us a visit. The letters section had the question asked of, has a meteorite ever been found that is suspected to have come from the solar system other than our own, and how would we recognize such a meteorite? The answer from Astronomy Magazine was that 99% of meteorite that we have on Earth come from the main asteroid belt. Something like one-third of those, I know, come from the asteroid Vesta, which got smashed into pretty good some million years ago. They note that a small fraction of meteorites come from Mars, there's about 180 that are known, and the Moon, about 275. Some meteorites have been suspected to come from comets. Carl Sagan famously once said, it is unlikely that a single meteorite of extrasolar origin has ever reached the surface of the Earth. Well, I don't know, Carl, hold the phone. And and yes, I'm I'm speaking metaphorically, I realize that the great Dr. Sagan has, has passed on. Well, no matter how unlikely it may be, at this point in time, it's noted that extrasolar meteorites have not been identified in anybody's meteorite collection. And as the question of how we would know something came from from deep space, they sort of dodge the question, but they do note that um, we do have pre-solar materials in, in meteorites, primitive meteorites, as it were, created in stars before our solar system formed and transported to our proto-solar nebula. They note that we can identify tiny grains, which range in size from nanometers to a few micrometers, based on their anomalous isotope compositions. The magazine also notes there's evidence of the delivery of material from nearby supernova at least twice within the last 10 million years. This material was deposited on Earth and is identified based on isotopic anomalies in sea sediments. I don't know, when you shake that all down, it seems to me that we do have extrasolar material out there. We just, uh, you know, it depends on how we're labeling it. We will happily report any developments in this area uh, if they arise. All right, back to JFK. In the ramp up to the records release that was supposed to take place last week, there was a lot of publicity. They trotted out uh, uh, Philip Shenden, Gerald Posner, all sorts of people to say, well, it's very unlikely there's going to be anything of interest in there. But we think that they should release it. Otherwise, conspiracy theorists are going to continue to claim that something's being hidden, blah, 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 blah. President Trump himself tweeted that he was going to release all the records, but then waffled a bit and said, we may hold a little bit back for national security reasons. Supposedly, Roger Stone, who evidently, I guess, got got kicked off Twitter for a while for his usual intemperate remarks, was urging 
President Trump to release the records. Mr. Stone has himself written a book about the Kennedy assassination, blaming it on LBJ, as a Republican hitman would. That's his self-description, by the way, Republican hitman. But at any rate, in the ramp-up to this so-called records release, there was a lot of talk about how, well, the Warren Commission, you know, really hasn't been disproven, blah, 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 blah. Forgetting the fact that the other government investigation of the Kennedy assassination concluded that there was a conspiracy. Be that as it may, the day of the records release came and the day of the records release went. And, you know, it was pretty hard to find any coverage after the records release. CNN did mention at one point that there were 3,100 records, 2,800 got released, implying arithmetically that there were 300 records that were retained for national security reasons. We're here to inform you that this is all wrong. The true numbers are as follows. There were 3,157, I believe, records held by the archives that had never been seen in any form. Most of the things released had been previously released in censored form. Parts of it were redacted or blacked out. But over 3,100 documents had in no way, shape, or form seen the light of day. It turns out that evidently 52 of those got released. Meaning that from this most curious data set of files, 98% got retained. Overall, there are something like 30,000 records held by the archives related to the JFK assassination, which were supposed to be released 25 years after legislation in 1992 dictated that they should be. It is from this 30,000-plus batch of materials that the 2,800 files were released last week, meaning that over 91% of the overall material still is with the National Archives. And what did get released, if you will take the time to look at it, and I don't recommend that you do so, my dear listener, you will find that it's mostly crap. Lisa Pease, who we've had on this program at many occasions in the past, the former editor of Probe Magazine, (laughs) posed the question of how could it be that any of this was ever classified to begin with? It's just garbage. In my thumbing through the 134 pages with, I don't know, 50 documents per page, whatever whatever it was, I came across at least four items described as illegible documents related to X, Y, or Z. And when I pulled them up and looked at them, sure enough, they were illegible. So you have to ask the question, why would illegible documents be classified? There's obviously more to the story. Perhaps in the past they weren't illegible. I mean, if you keep making bad copies of things, eventually they become illegible. And if you think about it, that's a pretty good way to store your files if you don't want them to ever be read. Mr. McMillan speculates that maybe someone was handed a document and said, copy this a hundred times, and when you get to the hundredth copy that you can't read, put that back in the file. Anyway, we hope to bring somebody on board that can talk about this um, more authoritatively, perhaps Russ Baker, whose whowhatwhy.com website um, provided those timely numbers which as far as we know are quite accurate. But people are asking, where is the media on this? We were assured that there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. This is all BS. And they should release these documents just just so the conspiracy theorists won't keep mouthing off. But yet they did not release the documents. President Trump evidently gave the intelligence agencies, CIA, FBI mainly, and others, 
six more months to decide what it is they need to retain for national security reasons. Now, keep in mind that many of these documents date back to 1963. Keep in mind that the oldest of these documents date back to 1963, meaning that they've had 54 years in some instances to decide whether they can let this go. They don't really need six more months to figure this out. This whole thing was a big ploy to keep the records under wraps. It succeeded, and nobody seems to be reporting on it. So anyway, we're, what, 20 minutes into the show, and we've covered two topics, Mr. McWillan? That's pretty good. You know, we do have to talk about some anniversaries here in October of 2017. Let's start with commemorating, if that's the right word, the Russian Revolution, which took place... Well, there were two Russian revolutions back in the year 1917. The first, in February of that year, overthrew the Tsarist government and set up a provisional government that never quite got its act together. It was headed by one Alexander Kerensky for, I don't know, a half year or so, who later was in exile living in the United States. I remember as a boy when they would occasionally trot out Kerensky to talk about things that had taken place in the Soviet Union since he left. But there is a Soviet Union, or was a Soviet Union, because a few months after the first revolution, they had what was known as the October Revolution. It actually probably took place in November of 1917, because the Russians had not got around to revising their calendar, and they were something like 11 days off the rest of the world by then. But uh, we certainly don't have time to, to go over the events of the Russian Revolution, all would make a hell of a good radio program to do so. But to make a long story short, the Bolsheviks won. They set up a communistic system that lasted uh, up until the year 1991 when it basically imploded. The truth is, I think it's fair to say, it never worked terribly well. At least if you're going to judge a nation by how well it provides for its citizens. The Soviet Union certainly did have its triumphs. It basically, basically did most of the fighting against the Nazis during World War II, which, as you may be well aware, the Allies won. It does astonish me to realize that, so I've heard anyway, uh, numerous polls of, of the kids of today about World War II uh, reveal that many of them believe that the United States was allied with Germany against the Soviet Union, in case you think that, no, no, not not correct. The U.S. was allied with the Soviet Union and the British Empire against Nazi Germany and fascist Italy and Imperial Japan, known as the Axis powers. I mean, by virtue of taking uh, most of Germany's rocket scientists, uh, the Soviet Union were, was able to beat the United States into space and to really lead uh, what was known as the space race for quite some time. But in a system of top-down thinking, it was also true that a quack, a complete and utter quack, gained control of Soviet biology. His name was Trofim Lysenko. We've talked about on this program in the past. Suffice it to say today that he set back Soviet agriculture probably a generation, single-handedly. Which, if you think about it, actually is quite an accomplishment. Anyway, perhaps we'll talk about it more in the future, but, uh, you know, a hundred-year anniversary, the Soviet Union, also rest in peace. Although, The Economist magazine does point out in the current edition that uh, with Vladimir Putin, one might say, a Tsar is born. Yes, that's a pun. 
Putin certainly has reestablished some of the central control that uh, was so popular in the days of the communists, but we don't have time to go into that today. Let's just let's just move on to something that happened 50 years ago this month, which kind of blows my mind to realize this happened at the midway point between the Russian Revolution and today, which was the capturing and execution of Ernesto Che Guevara in Bolivia, which took place on October 9th in 1967. Writing about this event in The Economist, the Bellow column noted that in death, Che, with his flowing hair and beret, has become one of the world's favorite revolutionary icons. His fans span the globe. Youthful rebels wear t-shirts emblazoned with his image. Ireland this month issued a commemorative stamp. I, I never heard of Che Guevara while he was alive. I was a kid. But after his death, the Spanish teacher was referring to a television program the night before, and I believe it was, it was a, a spy drama of some sort that had asked the question, who was Che Guevara? His story today is, is generally um, pretty well known. He was Argentinian. He studied to be a physician. And he wound up being one of Fidel Castro's right-hand men in the Cuban Revolution. Castro then packed him off to go around the world to try and export revolution to Africa and later South America. In this, he did not succeed. Some have argued that Fidel Castro wanted to get the charismatic Che out of Cuba, and perhaps in the process, if he got shot, that wouldn't be any great tragedy to Fidel's future. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know that Che Guevara was present in Guatemala in 1954 when the Central Intelligence Agency overthrew the Arbenz government. Che was known to be sympathetic to the land reform efforts of the Arbenz people, and the CIA, after capturing him, had him tossed out of the country. I don't remember whether it was David Atlee Phillips or E. Howard Hunt, who said later that if they'd only known who they had in their custody at the time, he would not have survived. But I'm sure a lot of folks thought that at CIA afterwards. By the way, among the files we'd like to see that are still held in the National Archives are records related to Mr. E. Howard Hunt and David Atlee Phillips. They were deeply involved in overthrowing governments overseas, murdering people as necessary, and uh, appear to have had some role in certainly the cover-up of the JFK assassination and possibly the event itself. We would refer you back to our archives here at Radio Parallax for our talk with the son of E. Howard Hunt, St. John Hunt, about his dad's deathbed confession in the JFK assassination and more. Another event we should commemorate is the fact that it was on October 31st in the year 1517, 500 years ago, this last Halloween, that Martin Luther began the Protestant Revolution by nailing up his list of complaints about the Catholic Church on a cathedral door. The Lutheran Church, which he founded, is still with us. Uh, so is the Catholic Church, which he rebelled against. Luther himself is a truly fascinating figure in world history. In his evaluation of the 100 most influential persons in world history, author Michael Hart put Luther at number 25, which is pretty high up the list. And I think I'll quote a bit from Michael Hart's excellent work regarding Martin Luther. Said Hart, the Reformation played a subtle but important role in the intellectual development of Western Europe. Before 1517, there had been a single established church, the Roman Catholic Church, and dissenters were branded as heretics. Such an atmosphere was certainly not 
conducive to independent thinking. After the Reformation, as various countries accepted the principle of freedom of religious thought, it became safer to speculate on other subjects as well. This list, as a whole, is strongly dominated by persons coming from the Protestant countries of Northern Europe and America. One notices that only two of these persons, Gutenberg and Charlemagne, lived before 1517. Prior to that date, most of the persons on this list came from other parts of the world and the peoples living in what are now Protestant countries made a comparatively small contribution to human culture and history. This obviously suggests that Protestantism or the Reformation may in some way have been responsible for the fact that there have been a large number of eminent persons from these regions in the past 450 years. Perhaps the greater intellectual freedom existing in these areas has been an important factor. People have been speculating about that for quite, quite some time. Uh, most recently, we would note the current edition of New Scientist magazine has an article about Luther's legacy. Author Philip Ball quotes some authorities who are a little more doubtful about this idea that the Protestant Revolution spurred scientific thought. Personally, I don't think they completely make their case in, in this proposition. But to quote from the article, Early Protestantism was hardly more progressive or scientific than Catholicism. Luther had a rather low opinion of Copernicus, whose ideas he heard about from other scholars. In Wittenberg, before they were published, Luther called Copernicus a fool who sought, quote, to reverse the entire science of astronomy, unquote. Luther asked, what about the biblical story in which Joshua commanded the sun, not the earth, to stand still? The article does go on to note that the Reformation was not a single event going back to Luther. There were many rebellions against the Catholic Church. In Switzerland, Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich and Jean Calvin in Geneva led their own rebellions. And while Henry VIII had denounced Martin Luther in the 1520s, when he was denied a papal divorce from Catherine of Aragon, he then established the Anglican Church. By the way, the Pope granted Henry VIII the title Defender of the Faith for his ardent Catholicism, which is still retained by the monarchy in the UK for the sovereign. Anyway, we're going to wind up siding with Michael Hart on this one. It does appear that the Protestant Reformation did allow a more freedom of thought, which led in no small part to the scientific revolution, which has so influenced our lives today. But I do want to close with uh, the dissenting piece from New Scientist, which notes that the Spanish physician Michael Servetus, who discovered the pulmonary circulation of the blood from right to left ventricles of the heart via the lungs, got imprisoned in Catholic France for his supposedly heretical religious views. However, when he escaped and fled to Calvinist Geneva, he got burned at the stake there for having previously argued bitterly with John Calvin on points of religious doctrine. So there you go. All right, looks like we've burned through a whole segment here. Let us take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Parallax. 